Good morning, everyone. You can be seated at this time. For those of you who don't know me, I am Pastor Jim. I am the youth and kids pastor here at Living Word, and I've been here for the, the past 11 months. And in these 11 months, I've got to work with some exceptional youth and kids workers. This church has awesome youth and kids workers. You might not know this, but it takes 60 adults to run our 0 through 18-year-old services throughout the week. Our 60, I don't know if I said 16, 60 adults, which is crazy to think that we have that many people here at Living Word serving each week, your children and your teenagers. And I've been here, like I said, the past 11 months, and I've learned a lot from your kids and from your grandkids. One thing I've learned from your kids and your grandkids is that I should number my sermon pages when I'm preaching in youth group, because at any time a teenager might decide it would be funny to flip over my stand with all my notes. I wish I was joking, but that's true. I, I learned that if, that if peanut butter, like a peanut butter sandwich like that, a piece of peanut butter, is rubbed on my face and neck, I break out into hives. Never knew that, but found that out here at this youth group. I learned that if I leave my doors unlocked in my office, this might happen. This might get put in my office, if you can tell. It's an air hockey table. Or this might get left in my office. That is 1,600 balloons which took approximately an hour to pop all of them because that was the only way to remove them. I had gone away to my honeymoon. I got married in April, and I was so excited to be back with my, my wife. And I opened the office door, and there is 1,600 balloons in my office. Luckily, I, they didn't know that I had left my apartment door unlocked the whole time because who knows how many balloons they could have fit in there. But I've learned all kinds of lessons here, but I've also learned what it looks like when a child has started to grab hold of the gospel. I've, I've seen that in this kid named Jonah who is in fourth grade. Um, Jonah, I asked Jonah to be on the, the kids' worship team, and he's up there. He's dancing away doing kids' worship. I asked him to be on the kids' worship team, and he was hesitant because he was afraid to be on stage. He didn't want people watching him dance. He felt goofy. But he had a heart to show other young boys what uh, an example of what worshiping God looked like. And so he stepped up, and though he was nervous, um, he decided to join our worship team because he grabbed hold of the gospel. Uh, there's third and fourth grade girls named Grace and Annabelle, who I see grab hold of the gospel because every day, every Sunday, they come and they look for the new girls, and they grab them and they talk to them and they make sure that they don't feel alone. Um, I see it in, a, a, I believe he's in second grade, a second grade boy named Jordan, who um, we have a kids' buck store where they can earn kids' bucks um, for answering questions and things like that. And once a month, they can buy prizes. And we were at the kid' buck store, and Jordan saw that this girl wanted something but needed an extra two kid bucks. So he gave his bucks and gave them to her so that she could have enough. I've seen it in a 10th grader named Corey who gave up, generously gave up his summer so that he could raise $1,000, not for himself, not for college, not for a car, which is probably what I would have done his age. But he, he worked for an entire summer to raise over $1,000 to support churches across the world. I've seen what, the God, what a child looks like, what a student looks like when they've been transformed by the gospel. I've seen it in your guys' kids and grandkids, and it's been awesome to see. And so I've seen, like I said, your kids and your grandkids get the gospel. I see how they, that they've got it by their selfless and generous lives. 
Now, some of you who might be parents or grandparents of those kids, you're like, well, you haven't seen them at home. And um, maybe there's times you probably have a list really long that I don't want to get into of all the stuff maybe that they, they struggle with. And we're all a work in progress. But it's amazing to see that they uh, are starting to see who Jesus is and allow him to transform them. And it's amazing to see that. And I see it because they live selfless and generous lives. It's so encouraging to see students who live selfless and generous lives. And we all here love uh, stories of giving. Who here doesn't like stories of giving? Like a a guy helps an elderly lady or or whatever. We love those stories. If you have a pulse here today, when you hear a story of someone being generous, someone doing something good, you get warm and fuzzy. And there was a, a particular story that grabbed the hearts of Americans this past year. It was the story of the Collins family. Now, this story started off with with tragedy, the, the, on July 7, 2012, Aaron Collins took his own life at the age of 30. And his parents were dealing with like the, the tragic news. Um, his mom and his brother and his family, they, they were overcome with grief. They couldn't understand why he would do it. They couldn't understand why he would hurt himself and also hurt them. And so they were processing through this grief uh, of losing a son, and, and they're, they're dealing with the situation. And after he had passed, um, that after uh, a short time after he had passed, they found that he had written a will. He had written a will 10 years earlier in a brighter time of his life. And in this will, he had a shred of generosity, a hint of generosity. There was an echo or, a, or, a, or there was a small hint that at one point in his life before he had allowed life to get dark, there was a, a point in his life where he w- had a, a hint of generosity, and they grabbed hold of that, that hint and that speck of generosity, and they ran with it, and they did something really cool. Let's take a look at the really cool thing his family did. If you could play the video. Pacini's smiling teeth, I'm waiting for the rest of the family to get here, and then we'll be going in and uh, having lunch and giving someone a big tip. And so you saw there in the video, it was a little um, screechy because it was they were at a restaurant. But Aaron had asked in his will that he had written 10 years before he passed that his family go out if he were to die and to go to a pizza place and leave a $500 tip, which is a huge tip. And so they, 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 his family saw that in his will, and they were inspired, and they saw that hint of generosity, and they ran with it. And they went out to a pizza place, and they gave a $500 tip. And like you saw there, they filmed it while they were doing that. And so they, they filmed the giving the $500 tip, and they posted it on YouTube. And the video went viral, meaning tons and tons of people, millions of people saw this video. They saw one family's generosity. And that sparked in the hearts of many Americans a sense of generosity. It sparked a movement of generosity across America. And through just this one act of generosity, $60,000 has been raised to tip waiters and waitresses across the country. $60,000. And so the, the Collins family has raised money. 100% of the donations go to the waiters or waitresses. They drive once a week to a restaurant across America. They sit, they pay for the gas, they pay for the food, and then they leave a $500 tip because of this generosity of, of America, because of the generosity of their family, because of the generosity of one man. 
It's so cool to see. And so we have this imperfect man named Aaron with a hint of generosity who took his own life. And with his death sparked a change in his family's heart. And this family's generosity has sparked a movement across America, a movement of generosity. But in contrast to that, we have not an imperfect God, but a perfect God with not just a hint and a speck of generosity, but with an abundance of generosity. We have a perfect God with an abundance of generosity who didn't take his life, but generously gave his life. What if that story, what if that message changes the hearts of our Living Word family? What could Living Word's generosity do in America? What kind of movement could start, could stem from Living Word's generosity? That's exciting to think about, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. When Jesus Christ, who is God, left heaven and came to earth, he walked among us, and he told us who a disciple was or what a disciple does, and he spoke specifically that there are two things that we should do, and he called them the greatest commandments. He said that a disciple of Christ or someone who is in love with Jesus should love God and love others. And so he asked us to love God and to love others. And one of the ways, um, and actually this is really cool because every week in kids' church, your kids hear about loving God and loving others. And pretty much every week in youth group, we focus on loving God and loving others. And so it's exciting to see that your kids are hearing this message every week. That's a side note. That's free. Um, But anyways, um, that's what my dad, who's a pastor, every time he says something not in his notes, he goes, that's free. So I picked that up from him. But anyways, um, so he tells them to love God and to love others. And one of the ways that we show our love for others, or I'm sorry, our love for God, is by living consistently like his example for us, Jesus Christ. And so we show that we love God by living consistently like Jesus. And through the gospel message, which is Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, and dying for our sins, we see who God is and what God's like. And so if we who claim to be Christians are continuing to grow in our faith, We should have a better understanding of the gospel at each phase of our life. And we should also start to live out the gospel better and better as we grow in Christ. And here at Living Word, I think we do a really good job in a lot of areas of living out the gospel. I think we do a good job. The gospel shows that Jesus was a servant. When Jesus Christ left heaven to come and to serve us and to die for us, it showed that Jesus was a servant. And I've worked with so many of of these leaders here, and I know that you guys have a servant's heart. There's two guys on our youth leadership team named Dave and Steve. Steve is sitting up here. And they are always one of the first ones there at every service, last one to leave at every service, not even just youth services, but all kinds of services, setting up and tearing down. And you just see the servant's heart that so many people have here at this church. Jesus Christ also showed it through the gospel that Jesus loved the unlovable when he came and he didn't just die for the really nice people, but he died for everyone. And I've seen that here too, how you guys have opened your arms to people and you love everyone no matter who they are. And so I think we at Living Word do a really good job of living out that part of the gospel. The gospel also reveals that Jesus desires to see everyone saved. How do we know that? Because he didn't just die for some, but he died for everyone And in talking with a lot of you, I see your heart that you would desire that your families and that this county and that everyone would know Jesus Christ. And I see it in how you're not afraid to share your faith. And so I see us living out that part of the gospel really well. This church has been a place that lives out the gospel globally or corporately really well. We do it in so many, we do so many sides of the gospel well. We live it out so well in our lives. But there's an area that not all of us have grabbed hold of yet. 
There's an area of the gospel that I think um, probably the majority of us have struggled with. And if, if we're like other churches in America, the majority, the majority of us here are struggling with today. Um, this is an area that, again, not all of us struggle with. Some of us, some of you guys here do this area really well. You understand this side of what the gospel message, you understand the side of Jesus very well. And you do such a good job in this area of the gospel that it kind of masks the fact that a lot of us here haven't or don't understand this part of God's character. And some of you, again, have done it, are, are, so, are so faithful and, and, and are so um, in tune with this part of the gospel and, and are living it out so well that it masks the fact that some of us understand the sight of God, understand this part of the gospel, but just haven't allowed it to change our lives. And so there's a, a part of the gospel that we're not living out. And today I'm excited because we're going, because it might be that we don't understand this part of God. And so today I get to tell you a part of God that you might have not understood, a side of Jesus Christ that you might have never seen, a part of the gospel message that you've never grabbed a hold of yet. And so today is going to be really cool because we're going to get to hear about God. Another thing that's really cool is that it's not just churches in 21st century America that struggle with this. There was a church 2,000 years ago, one of the first churches ever, that struggled with this part of the gospel too. So we're not alone. It kind of makes me feel better. It's been a problem for 2,000 years, so we're not the only ones. Feel better because someone else is just as bad. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's a thing that our church has struggled for for 2,000 years. And so 2,000 years ago, there was a church in Corinth that struggled with this. Now, when I talk about a church 2,000 years ago in a place called Corinth, you probably just went like, like zoning out. You're thinking about how the Bills are going to lose by only 20 points this week or something, or you're, you're dreaming about Syracuse basketball. Maybe that's a little better. And so you've probably zoned out as soon as I said 2,000 years ago in Corinth. You're like, whatever, whatever he's talking about. But it's actually very similar to the place we live today. It's very similar to America. It's very similar to the place that you're going to go out to when you leave these, these doors. It's very similar to the place you work at. It's very similar to the place you live. And so Corinth is, is not too different than current America. Now, um, they didn't have Facebook, but other than that, they were pretty much the same. No, I'm just kidding. But, but they were a nation that was wealthier than most of the other nations in the world. Kind of sounds like Wayne County, right? Some of you are laughing, like, have you seen Wayne County? We're not rich. But compared to the rest of the world, Wayne County is actually pretty well off. And so they were richer than the majority of the world. And with um, the wealth and with the wealth that they had, they had some extra free time. And in their free time, their country had an obsession with two things, sex and sports. To be called a Corinthian girl was synonymous with being called a prostitute. That's how um, engulfed the culture was in sex. And also, they were so obsessed with sports, they would have this big, giant um, like tournament thing every other year that the, the whole nation would rally around, and it was a huge part of their country, and so or, or a huge part of Corinth. And so they're a culture that's wealthier than the rest of the world, that has an obsession with sex and sports. Doesn't sound too different than America, right? And so basically, it's, they're in a, a place that's not too different than us. They're struggling and they're thinking through things that are very similar to what we're going through. And so it's not a surprise that this church also struggled with a part of the gospel that we struggle with today in America. And so 
And so this town had a church, just like we have a church here. And this, had church had, this church had done a lot of things wrong. They had done a lot of things not so well. And so they were receiving tons and tons of letters of cor- correction, uh, tons and tons of letters telling them that they should do different things and they should try to grab a hold of who God is better and better. And so all these letters are actually connected in your Bibles, are, are, all, are collected, I'm sorry, in your Bibles in a book called First and Second Corinthians. And so if you've never read your Bible today because it seems intimidating and it seems weird, they're just letters. What's intimidating about letters? So check out First and Second Corinthians. If you've been scared to read your Bible, I would encourage you to start there because it's just letters. What's scary about that? But anyways, that's another thing that's kind of free. Um, anyways, they were getting all these letters. And as they were starting to get these letters, they were starting to change. And they were starting to live more like who God called them to be. And a guy named Paul, who was kind of like the super Christian of the first century, Paul um, like was starting churches, he was preaching, he wrote part of the Bible, he was like the guy. And so he, he's writing to them, and he tells them that they're doing a lot of things well, that they're living out the gospel well in a lot of areas. He says that they're doing the right things, like sharing their faith, like preaching good sermons at church, and that they have a desire for knowledge. And these are all things that Living Word does well. Well, maybe, maybe the preaching is, well, when Pastor Barn and Pastor Mike do it. But other than that, these are all things um, that, that Living Word does really well. But like I said, there was one area of the gospel that this church hadn't grabbed hold of. There was one area of the gospel that, that they were struggling with. And I believe it's the one that God has called us here today, 2,000 years later, to work on, to live out. Here's what Paul says to this church. He says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God and his kindness has done through the church, the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only in what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. So they weren't guilt tripped, they weren't like a gun wasn't held to their head, they weren't pressured, they gave out of their own free will and love. So we have urged Titus, who's like another preacher, who encouraged your giving in the first place to return to you and encourage you to finish the ministry of giving since you excel in so many ways in your faith, like I talked about, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your, your enthusiasm, your love from us. I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is. Wow. By comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches, And this is the part, this is where it all hinges on here. This is the part that kind of wrecks us, is it says that you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. He says that Jesus Christ, for your sake, became poor so that you could become rich. Give and live generous lives because you serve a God who is generous, a God who for your sake became poor so that you could become rich. I want to talk about this analogy a little bit, but there's a guy. Could you imagine if Bill Gates came up to you today and and he talked to you and he said, how much money do you owe on your house, your cars, and your college and all that? And he goes, all right. And he writes a check for that and pays all that off. And he does that. But then also when he's done, he goes, here, I'm going to give you the rest of my salary and I'm going to trade places so that I may have what you had before and you have now what I used to have so that you have the billions of dollars. He writes you a check for billions of dollars so that he is in your lowly situation and you have his awesome situation of being a billionaire. Who would be grateful? 
No one would be Not a single person raised their hand. If I were to give you billions of dollars, you wouldn't be grateful. Good to know. Um, I really feel like I undergave some of my Christmas presents. But no, we would be overcome with joy because Bill Gates, it would blow our minds that he would become poor so that we could become rich. And what Paul is saying and what the gospel reveals is that we have a God that did just that. He not only became poor so that we could, or he not only gave so that we could pay our debts, but he also gave enough so that he would become poor and we could become rich. Jesus Christ, who is God, was in heaven. And while in heaven, he was very rich because he owned everything. Everything was his. Everything he created was his. There was nothing that was not his. He didn't need anything. He didn't even need us. He created us, but he didn't need us. And so God is rich in the sense that he needs nothing. He has everything that he wants, everything that he needs. And so he's incredibly rich in that way. But he's not just rich in that way. He's rich in, in glory. He's rich in righteousness, meaning like he's always, always righteous. He's never made a bad decision. He's never um, lied. He's never lusted. He's never done anything bad. He's rich in righteousness, meaning he's never messed up. So, so he's rich in righteousness. He's rich in glory. He's rich in that he owns everything. And he's also rich in relationship. There's a component of our God that, that we won't grasp till we get to heaven, which is called the Trinity, and how we have one God and three persons, and how there's God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and, and Jesus Christ, which is God the Son. And they had a perfect relationship that we can't experience. And so God is in heaven, and he's rich in that he owns everything. He's rich in, that, in glory. He's rich in righteousness, and he's rich in relationship. He is so rich, and he's in heaven, and he looks down on us. He looks down at us and sees how poor we've become. He sees how, how unrighteous and how poor and how lacking we are. And his heart breaks. Because God didn't create us poor. God created us rich. We were rich in that we were in him. We were with him. We were created perfect and without sin. But somewhere along the way, we saw who God was, and we saw his righteousness, and we saw how perfect he was, and we decided we didn't want that. We instead wanted sin. We wanted to be our own God. And so we chose sin over God. We chose sin over God, and so we became separated from God. And in choosing sin over God, we became poor. We became so poor. We became so poor and we had accumulated so much debt with sin that there was nothing we could do to pay for this debt. We were so poor in unrighteousness that there was no way we could pay the debt ourselves. We couldn't pay the debt we owed to remove ourselves from the destination that we were going because of sin. Just like if you owe too much money on your house and you don't have enough money to pay the mortgage, what does the bank do? They take your house. There's a punishment for that because you couldn't pay your debt. There's a punishment. And our punishment because we couldn't pay our debt was hell. We were destined for hell, and there was nothing we could do about it. We couldn't live good enough lives to pay for our debt. We couldn't give enough money to church to pay for our debt. We couldn't go to church enough to pay for our debt. We couldn't even pray enough to pay for our debt. We couldn't serve enough to pay for our debt. There was nothing on earth that we could give God to pay our debt. And so because of that, our punishment was hell. There was nothing we could do about it. And so God, who sees how poor we are in righteousness, his heart breaks for us. And he sees that we're poor. He sees that though we turned his back on him, he wouldn't turn his back on us. And Jesus Christ says, I will become poor so that they can become rich. And so Jesus Christ leaves heaven and he comes to earth. And while on earth, he lives a perfect, sinless life. And he comes... And what's amazing is Jesus didn't even come as a rich human. Like he left the riches of heaven. He left the riches of his um, communion with God. And he comes down here 
And he doesn't even become a king or a ruler or a warrior or something with high status, but he comes as a baby in a household of carpenters and is raised a carpenter. Our God became that poor. He became the poorest of poor humans on earth. And even though he was poor, he still generously gave. He gave food to those that needed food. He gave healing to those that needed healing. He gave teaching to all of us who needed teaching. And ultimately, he would give a sacrifice to all of us who needed saving. Again, we were so poor. We were so in, um, in sin that there was nothing we could do. There was no way that we could pay the debt of our sin. We had, a, we, we had a debt that we couldn't pay, and so Christ decided to pay our debt for us. For the first time ever, our generous God takes something from us. He takes the punishment that you and I deserve. Our generous God gave up his life and paid the debt that we couldn't pay ourselves. And that debt didn't come cheap. He had that death that when Jesus died for us, he didn't die of old age. He didn't die of natural causes. But he died because he was whipped. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. And he was left there to die. Our generous God paid the debt. Our generous God paid the penalty. Our generous God took the punishment that we deserve. Our God is so generous. But our God died for us. But while on that cross, which is awesome, is after he died, he didn't stay dead. But after three days, he rose again. And so because of that, we now have our hope. Or we now have a hope. We now can be saved. Our generous God died for us. But what's really cool is that's only part of the story. Because that would just be like our God coming down to earth and becoming poor so that we could break even. If all Jesus did was paid our debt, then all we would do is be broke, we'd, he'd, uh, we'd be broken even. So if, you, if, I were, if Bill Gates were to come and pay all your mortgage for you and pay your car payments and pay all of that, you would, be, you would break even. You wouldn't be rich, but you wouldn't be poor anymore. But that's not what Jesus did. It would be like, like I said earlier, where Bill Gates comes and he not only pays your debt, he not only pays uh, off all, all the things that you owe, but he also gives you the, the money that he has earned. And makes you as rich as he was rich. He gives you the riches that only Bill Gates had earned. If he did that for you, you would be incredibly rich. And in doing that, he became poor. So not only that you could break even, but so that you could become rich like he was rich. And our God did the same thing. He was so generous that he not only uh, became poor so that we could break even. He not, only t- he not only paid the debt that we owed. He not only died the death that we deserved. But he also gives us the reward that only he deserves. When Jesus Christ came, he was so generous in that he not only died for us, but he gives us the reward only he deserves, which is heaven. Only Jesus Christ deserves heaven, and yet he offers us a way to take on his righteousness, to take on his good deeds, and, take, and be in the place that only he deserves. That's how generous our God is. Our God is so generous that he not only died the death we deserve, but he gives us the reward that only he deserves. That's pretty awesome. That excites me. It's amazing to think of God in that way and to see how generous God is. The gospel reveals that our God is generous when our God was willing to give up all his riches to come to earth and become poor so that we could become rich. That's how generous our God was. But do we get that? Do we live that part of the gospel out? Do we understand that? I don't. No, if we do. And I, I would doubt that, at least not all of us do. 
And how, how do I know that not all of us have grabbed hold of this part of the gospel? How do I know that all of us, not all of us here understand that our God is generous? I know, I know based on what we do with the things that God has generously given us. I know, if you, I know because of what we do, again, with the things God has generously given us. This past Wednesday was Christmas. Who here spent way too much money on their kids or grandkids for Christmas? More people raised their hands for that than they did for they'd be thankful for a billion dollars. Uh, anyways, um, my, my dad was one of those parents that always spent way too much. My dad is a super, super generous guy, almost like irresponsibly generous. If it wasn't for my mom, who's also generous, but is a little more sane, we probably would have been broke because she would kind of like, all right, don't buy them new cars, they're 12. Um, but my dad was super generous, so he would like buy us all kinds of gifts. He was so excited. And there was one Christmas and like, I was in eighth or ninth grade that I'll never forget because I'm opening all these presents and like I'm opening gift cards and I'm opening up um, video games and clothes and all this really cool stuff. And I don't know if you guys do this at your house, but my dad would always give me one big gift at the end. There was like one that was kind of more expensive than all the other gifts that was nicer than all the other gifts. And we saved that for the end. And so I'm opening presents and I'm like holding up my shirt and I'm so excited. We're taking pictures for my Grammy and the, yeah, I call my grandma Grammy. And um, we're taking pictures of the video games and all that stuff. And I finally get to the last gift and I'm so excited because I know this is the big gift. And so I'm, I'm so pumped and I grab the gift and I start to open it and there's anticipation. My heart's like beating. I'm like, oh, I can't wait. You know, I was 14. Give me a break. And so I rip it open and I look and I'm so excited and then I see... It's a graphing calculator. <laughs> and I was like, seriously, Dad? And like, I got so mad. My dad had bought me um, all these like video games, which are 60 bucks. He bought me clothes. He, bought, he gave me gift cards. He bought me books. He bought me all the stuff I wanted. He paid $200 for a graphing calculator. But I was furious because what kind of gift is a $200 graphing calculator? And I was so mad. And so normally, like, Allison found out I'm kind of crazy. I have to, like, put all my presents away right away. Like, that's just the way I am. I can't leave them sitting out. It drives me nuts. But I was protesting because I was so mad. So I threw the calculator under the tree and was like, I'll pick it up later. And so I'm freaking out, and I'm, like, having a hissy fit. Now, keep in mind, I'm a 6'1", at the time, very overweight, acne-filled teenager, like, going, <laughs> It was not pretty. And so I'm having a hissy fit. I'm freaking out. And I, I'm just so ungrateful. And you can tell that I didn't understand that I had a generous father by the way I, the way I reacted and the things I did with the things my generous father had given me. If you were to see and look in on that Christmas, which I'm so glad we didn't film. It's very embarrassing how I reacted. You would see that I didn't understand that I had a generous father. And I can tell based I can tell here in, in Living Word and also just in looking at the statistics in the churches in America that we don't understand that we have a generous Heavenly Father by what we do with the resources He generously gives us. I, I, um, I looked up some statistics. I'm, I'm a numbers guy. I like to look up statistics. And I found all kinds of cool stuff. They had actually just done um, research in 2012, so it's very current. And I found out that Christians in 2012, the average Christ, American Christian gave 2.5% of their income to church, which is only 1% less than what Christians gave in the Great Depression. Yeah, like the Great Depression, not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression, you know, where everyone didn't have money. We Christians today give 1% less of their income than Christians did then. 
uh, in the Great Depression. I looked and also saw that uh, in a typical American church, again, I, I have no idea what Living Word gives. I don't know what you give. Some of you who gave a lot were thinking, yeah, he knows I give a lot. I have no idea. Some of you don't give anything. like, oh, he doesn't know what I give. But I have no idea what you guys give, so don't feel, feel weird. But anyways, a typical American church, uh, only 10 to 25% of its people give the biblical tithe of 10%. Um, so what that means, and that 10 to 25% of people fund 80% of what a typical church does. So 10 to 25% in a typical American church fund 80% of what happens. And so that might be confusing because it's a lot of numbers, and I said it really fast. So I don't think we have a full row of people. So let's see how we can do this. Um, why don't we have, let's see, if we could have um, everyone in this middle section stand. Two, yeah, you guys, right? Just write these front three rows. Two, fours, two, four, six, eight. Yeah, if you guys could stand. And then Mike and, and, and um, Steve could stand. Let's give it up. These are, these are the people that fund 80% of what the church does. I don't know if these are actually the people, but in a typical church, of a church of about our size, this is the number of people that would fund close to 80% of what we do. So this number of people plus this number of people in second service combined funds 80% of what Living Word does. So 80% of, it pays for, pays for 80% of the heating, the building, the electricity, um, paying the staff, the outreaches, all those things. Yeah, you guys can be seated. That number of people pays for 80% of what we do. Isn't that crazy? And so it's amazing to think that, that we've accomplished all of that. It's amazing to think that we have accomplished. You look at the size of our building, you look at the number of people on staff, and you think, wow, that small group of people funds all of that. And it's awesome to see that that group of generous givers funds that. But I feel like God wants us to do more. What if, again, that number of people would be like one row standing across from here? What if instead of a one-row church, one row of givers, what if we were a two-row or a three-row or a four-row giving church? What if we were that kind of church? Think of the lives we could change in Ontario and, uh, and, and our community. Think of the, the teenagers and kids we could minister to the adults. Think of the, the gifts of benevolence we could give. Think of the amazing impacts we could have here in our country and in our world if we were just a two-row church. God has called us to be so much more. He's called us to do so much more. And he's even given us the resources for it. You guys are just holding on to it. And so I want to wrap it off with this. I want us today to grab hold of the character of who God is. I don't want you to leave feeling guilty, but I want you guys to leave feeling encouraged because we have a generous God who became rich or who, who left his riches and became poor so that all of us could become rich. We have a perfect God with an abundance of generosity who gave his life for us. So what are we going to do about that? In light of the gospel message, in light of who God, our generous God, what are we going to do about it today? For you, it might mean starting a plan of giving in 2014. Maybe you don't give anything, so planning $10 a month, $20 a month, 2%, 10%, whatever that is. Maybe that's what God is calling you to do to respond to his generosity. Or maybe you're here and you don't know who Jesus Christ is. And so your response is to give so much more than a percent of your income, but to give your life to the generous God who gave his life for you. Whatever that is, I would encourage us today to respond to our generous God. 
Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are and for what you've done. I thank you for coming here and generously giving up all that you had, God, and becoming poor for us so that we could become rich. I pray today that you would transform our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. At this time, if you guys want to stand, we're going to close out in one song. We're going to sing. I encourage you to to rejoice in the fact that we serve a generous God who loved you so much that he became poor so that you guys could become rich. Let's sing today and let's praise our amazing God.
Let's give the Lord just a hand clap of praise this morning. Man, Pastor Jim, he hit a home run. That was a good word today. And God is good, isn't he? Isn't our God good? It's just, uh, it's, it's great. You know, I love the part where he said, you know, Jesus just didn't come so that we could break even. And our God is so generous that he came to give us the riches from heaven. And his generosity is beyond what we can even think of or compare of. And the way we respond to that generosity is by how we love God through how we give and we serve. And that's our response to the grace. It's not out of, it's not out of duty. It's, it's not out of a, a, a heart that's uh, grudgingly giving to the Lord. But it's out of response to the love of Christ and what he did for us. And I thought Pastor Jim just laid that out so beautifully today. And my prayer for you as the pastor of this church is that you would respond to God's uh, generosity in that way. And the blessings that come with it are amazing, aren't they? Because it, it takes the, the, the locks off our hearts. It, takes, it breaks the chain off our hearts from the things of this world to the things of God. So um, may that be our goal this year to be uh, more generous than we were last year. Let, let God just touch your heart with that word as we grow closer to Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you for this word today. Lord, I pray that, God, we would realize that we are a blessed people. It's so easy to look at what we have and we think we have nothing, but yet we're so blessed, God. And it's not the amount, it's what we do with what you've given us. And God, may we be like that church in Macedonia that that gave out of a sense of grace. It was grace giving that they gave because it was out of response for the tremendous gratitude they had for what Christ did for them. So, Lord, I thank you for this church, and, and I just pray, Lord, that that, just as Paul, the Apostle Paul, encouraged the church in Corinthians to be like the church in Macedonia, that they would excel in the grace of giving. They did good in a lot of other areas, but may they excel in the grace of giving and in their generosity. And, Lord, may Living Word also be that church that excels in the grace of giving in response to what Christ has done for us. So may we go in your grace and your peace today. And I just pray just a, a blessing for this new year over every family, over every individual. God, may you just continue to lead our church. May you guide us by your Holy Spirit. And we just thank you that you'll never leave us or forsake us and we can trust you. And Lord, we know good things are, are, are possible and good things will happen for those that just put their complete trust in you. And so we thank you for this day. And we just give Jesus and Jesus alone all the glory that's due his name. We love you today. And we ask these things in your precious name. And all God's children said, amen, amen. God bless you. Go in God's grace. Amen.